Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey guys, welcome to week four. Got a bunch of really cool stuff to talk about. And at the end, an interview with Kevin Horton, Kevtris, the guy who did the high def Ness and a bunch of other really awesome stuff. So I'm pretty excited. Uh, and also, a lot of people seem to be listening as a podcast now, as well as on YouTube, which is really cool. I'm glad I was able to get it out to people in different ways. I know me personally, it's always way easier to listen to a podcast while driving than a YouTube video. But, you know, YouTube is still probably the best way because you get to see a lot of the stuff for yourself. But uh, podcast seems to be working well, too. So um, thanks, everybody, for their support. And let's just jump right into it. Tim Worthington just released an updated version of his N64 RGB board with a few more features. So just in case anybody doesn't know, there's two ways to RGB mod an N64. You could use a basic RGB amp on older models, um, but none of the newer models are supported. Or you could use Tim's board on all models of N64. Up until now, it didn't really make a difference which one you used, especially if you had an older N64. Both the video outputs looked identical and one wasn't better than the other in any way. Uh, the advantage, of course, was that with Tim's board you could use it on any console. That may have all changed now, though, with this latest feature that he's added. A, an option to disable the horizontal blur of the N64. Now this is pretty much the same as the Ultra HDMI's deblur feature, and in my opinion, it's awesome. I know this is something that's been talked about a lot the past few weeks, and I'm sure people are probably sick of hearing it, but it's my opinion that when playing on an RGB monitor, I want all of the blur features turned off. On a flat screen TV, that's debatable still, but um, this board, I, I mean, I can't wait to try it out and see how it looks. This combined with the anti-aliasing hacks for the Game Shark, um, I really think it might make a big difference for a lot of these games. Um, if anybody wants to see kind of how something like this would look, I really suggest you take a look at My Life in Gaming's video on it. Um, they really went in depth on the comparisons between the two, and although they didn't have Tim's board in it, they still were able to show basically how a hardware deblur would work. This board will come with a switch so you could actually toggle the blur on or off, so depending on your game or your situation, maybe you would want it or not. Um, also, Peter Bartman, aka Bordy, has uploaded a firmware for the older versions of the N64 RGB. So if you'd like and you have an older version, you could actually flash it to have it either on all the time or off all the time, um, which I thought was pretty cool as well. Um, the update to the board also included a new flex ribbon cable, which might allow for easier installations to the smaller chips, and it might actually make installation alongside an Ultra HDMI possible. Um, there was no limitation other than physical space up until now, um, but hopefully we'll be able to get some into test and uh, have both on the same N64. I just think that would be the coolest solution on earth is just to have a, you know, the RGB version with the hardware deblur and an HDMI version on the same one. You would pretty much have the most universal N64 ever. Pre-orders for the Atari Lynx flash cart have started shipping. Saint says he's going to process about 20 per week. Um, and he's going to contact you for payment when your number on the pre-order list is up. Um, you'll be able to choose between a cased or an uncased version, uh, and then you pay right there, and then you know it'll ship out pretty much the same week after he contacts you. Uh, pre-orders are still open. You can still get on the list. He's just doing everything in order. 
um, I'm pretty far down the list, uh, and I'm sure anybody that's getting on now, it'll be probably months before your car is shipped, but it's still, you know, he's doing his best, and it's still something I'm very excited to try. Um, also, he's making progress on the Jaguar ROM cart, which will hopefully start shipping as soon as he's done with all the Lynx ROM cart orders. Nintendo is giving gamers in New York City a chance to try the new Zelda game between June 14th and 19th. You'll have to show up the morning of the 11th uh, and line up to be one of the 500 people to make the cut. Basically, you'll get a wristband uh, and you get to make an appointment for one of those time slots between those days to play it. Um, supposedly, even if you're not part of the few, you'll be able to see demos, they'll probably put footage online, uh, and I'm sure there might be some other ways to get into play it. Next, Artemio has teamed up with DB Electronics to offer um, full hardware cart versions of the 240p test suite. So uh, Artemio wrote the 240p test suite for, I think, originally Dreamcast, but then he just ported it to a ton of consoles, and it is just a phenomenal piece of software. So it allows you to, to test everything from lag to scrolling. You could calibrate your monitor from it. I mean, I've used this thing countless amount of times ever since uh, I started getting into RGB and, and trying to get the, the perfect look out of whatever display I'm using. And up until now, you had to use a ROM cart or a CDR in order to actually access the 240p test suite. But uh, DB Electronics is doing a Genesis cart version for 20 bucks. Uh, and I, I think it's really awesome. Um, Artemio made me a Genesis cart version uh, I think over a year ago now when I first reviewed the Retron 5 um, and I love it I use it all the time so it's just really cool that everybody has access to this now and I hope that anybody that has a Genesis and needs to use the 240p test suite picks this up. So I'm not really sure what to think about this next piece of news. Um, I read on Engadget last week that there's a game called Hyper Light Drifter that uh, is being released with a special edition package that has a non-functional SNES game. So I just, I don't get it. I mean, I understand the concept. I read on Wikipedia that it's a 2D action role-playing game. And the lead developer, Alex Preston, says it's a combination of Zelda A Link to the Past and Diablo. Now, that alone is a really bold statement. And I would love for that to be true, but it just sounds like another indie developer trying to blow up his own project. Um, and I guess that'll, you know, whether the game's good or not will remain to be seen, but I just don't understand why they would include a SNES cartridge that doesn't work. Is it so you can open the box and, you know, be reminded of 16-bit of games before you play it? Is it like a, just a decorative item that's neat? It just, it seems strange and useless to me, but maybe I'm wrong. Please leave in the comments what everybody else thinks, and, you know, maybe you guys straighten me out and tell me why I'm looking at this the wrong way, but... To me, I just, it seems totally useless, and I hope the game is good. I mean, after all this, I probably will buy it now, but it just seems like the developers are doing anything they can to give the game press, regardless of if it makes the game better or not, or how it reflects upon them. But, I don't know, I guess we'll see. Next, uh, last week I updated the website with a page about 240p 3DO output. So, basically, the 3DO consoles only output 480i video, but the video that's actually inside the consoles and the way the games were made is 240p. It's just a 480i interpolation that happens as the video goes out to the, the actual outputs, S-Video, Composite, etc. Um, but last year, an Assembler Games forum user named Ayers figured out that if you jump two pins together on certain Model 3DOs, it disables that interpolation and allows for true 240p output. Um, it's a super easy mod, you just gotta solder two wires to two, you know, fairly large pins, 
and then hook them up to a switch. Um, it's got a few quirks though, so you have to wait until the game's booted in order to turn the switch on or else video might not work at all. Um, and then when you actually flick the switch, sometimes it lines up incorrectly, so the image looks worse. But the good news is you just flick it off and back on again, sometimes a couple of times, but uh, it's literally just a flick on and off, like click, click, click. You don't have to reboot or anything like that. Um, and once it dials in the correct mode, the, I mean, the, the difference is very noticeable. There's no way you could mistake the improper way. Um, and I really was just very impressed about the quality difference. Um, I have pictures up on the page, uh, and a couple people uploaded video comparisons that I linked to as well. And if you have a 3DO, it's something you should definitely look into. Just pop the case open, make sure your chip is compatible, uh, and then reference the 240p page that I just uploaded for the mod. Uh, and it's, it's really something that I think everybody with a 3DO would appreciate. Last for the news, My Life in Gaming uploaded a video about how their setups work, how they make the episodes, and I thought it was a really awesome behind-the-scenes look at how they do their thing. Uh, and they also added an Amazon link to all the stuff that they use, which I thought was pretty awesome, because very often I'll watch these videos and be like, oh, what is that? Where can I buy it? How much is it? But uh, they actually just did that for everybody. So I'll leave the link uh, in the description. And anybody who's really into making videos or at least appreciates some of these YouTube videos, I suggest giving it a watch because it's a pretty cool insight in uh, how they do things and, you know, kind of all the equipment that goes into doing what they do. Had a couple of great questions asked this week on uh, the comments and through email, um, and I wanted to go through a bunch of those. The first was from PokePress24 with a few production tips. He suggested when reading an email or a comment to show the text of the message on the screen. That's a great idea and I just didn't even think about it. And to be honest, I've been trying really hard to get the quality of these videos and podcasts up as best I can. I just, when I started doing this, I wasn't sure if anybody was going to watch it. So I didn't want to spend a ton of money and then, you know, learn how to use new software just for it to kind of be a waste of time. But it seems like people are enjoying it. People are listening on podcasts and on YouTube. Um, so I've tried to upgrade everything. Um, I got the newer webcam. Uh, and then I'm back to using the vocal recording mic that I use for my band stuff. I just got a nice little small stand so it uh, fits kind of right in front of me. Um, and I think everything this week is at least audio and video quality is much better. Last week I used the mic built into the new webcam and it was awful. So sorry for everybody that was listening. But um, the last step of the puzzle is getting the better software. So I'm using Windows Media Maker now, uh, or Movie Maker, the one that comes for free with uh, Windows Live stuff. Um, and it's not great, um, and it takes forever to edit stuff. So like last week, it took like eight hours to do that, and it didn't even come out that great. So this week, I figured it would be a lot easier and a lot quicker if I would just talk over pictures a lot rather than try to blend uh, video and pictures like I had the past few weeks. Um, and it did make it a lot easier, but it's still not the greatest production quality. So uh, I'm going to try to learn Avid, uh, Avid Media Creator. Uh, that's what my brother, who's a producer out in L.A., uses. He says that's what most of the big studios use, so if I'm going to learn something new, might as well learn that. And, you know, then I'll be able to get it a lot better looking. So at least now, for whoever's listening on podcasts, um, it should be about the same forever now. Um, and let me know if this isn't good enough. I'll upgrade to whatever I need to. Uh, the last step is just the video. So I would love to have, like, you know, a little picture here next to me of all the screenshots I'm showing, and then eventually green screen work. Um, but it's just going to take time with the software. So as always, you know, any feedback anybody has, let me know. If talking over the pictures is stupid, I'll do something different. But I was just trying to find a happy medium for looking good, easy to make, uh, that I could do today before I upgrade to the next software. So um, thanks for the input. I appreciate that.
Eric Hurley asked, in my opinion, is it worth holding off buying a FrameMeister until the OSSC, the open source scan converter, is properly released? Um, I'm not sure yet, but I'm doing a ton of testing this week and next on lag tests and upscaling, integer scaling. So hopefully in a week or two, I'll be able to come back and on the show and probably even have a page on the website that really explains if one is better than the other and why you would want to buy each one. Next, Phoenix 79 said that uh, in my second episode, I had mentioned that I don't like to make permanent mods to existing consoles, and is there any instructions I have on how to do this? Um, I meant really plastic, so you know I don't want to do anything, like I wouldn't cut a hole in the circuit board, but I'll certainly you know lift pins knowing that I could probably put them back if I need to, or uh, take a, a, like a chip out and put it in a socket. But mainly I'm talking about plastic and how I don't like to cut in plastic to make any irreversible mods. And the only way around this is anytime, you know, I kind of need to do that, I'll, I'll see if there's a different way I could fit it in. So for example, often I'll run cables out the vent hole or the RF hole to mount whatever I'm mounting on the outside of the console. Now this is really, really ugly. I mean, it's just, it's not for somebody that wants a pretty looking display. It's just for somebody like myself, I guess, that's constantly messing with these consoles and constantly trying new mods. It just doesn't make sense for me to keep cutting holes in them because they'd all look like Swiss cheese. Um, and if you wanted to preserve your console to be pretty much perfect, you might want to consider this as well. Just take the right precautions. You see shrink tubing, make sure you can't yank the wires out of the mod itself. But um, yeah, I'll put the picture up on YouTube for anybody watching, and it, it is very ugly, but it comes in handy when you just want to experiment or don't want to make any permanent changes. Next, my buddy Christian from Belgium asked, why do PVMs carry less signal than consumer TVs? So basically, you know, he's got a PAL uh, CRT with SCART input, and you can plug anything into it, RF, SCART, uh, RGB, SCART, S-Video, Composite. And uh, I think the answer is that PVMs and other professional equipment were designed to be used for pro use only. And in a lot of these professional settings, you would never want to rely on a TV's built-in comb filter or converter to go from like uh, composite to RGB. Um, you'd want to control every aspect of that signal yourself so that you get the best possible output. Because remember, a lot of these were broadcast monitors and they were made for, um, you know, like when you're editing movies, color correcting. Uh, so it's basically because it needed to be a precision instrument uh, that was the signal was fine-tuned on its way in. At least I think. Next is Steve Nutter asked, what are some details of the Mitsubishi monitor that's in some of the videos? Uh, and is there a list of other good monitors that aren't the obvious Sony PVM and BVM? Uh, well, the monitor you see is a Mitsubishi Megaview XC3730C. So it's a 37-inch uh, CRT from 1996. Uh, and the quality isn't as good as the Sony's or even uh, the smaller XM29 I had, but it's huge and it is better than a consumer TV, so it's perfect for like light guns and the, the Sega 3D games. Uh, and any any industrial broadcast monitor, so I think there were the Ikegamis and um, uh, for, there was a couple other brands, but basically if it was if it was part of a broadcast monitor or medical imaging solution and it accepted RGB inputs, it's going to look better than a consumer TV. Next is Mauricio from Brazil asked if I could put subtitles on the videos just to help people who maybe English isn't their first language. Um, it's something I definitely am going to get to at some point. I just, uh, I really barely have time to do as much of this as I do, uh, but I'm, it's on my list of things to do and I'm really going to try to do it as soon as I can. Next is John Malia asking about any kind of development to allow you to use a light gun or super scope on today's TVs. 
Actually, I'm going to have a guest next week that's going to talk a lot more about that. So uh, please tune back in next week for a lot more info. Last up is Joseph Garahan asking about ways to boot the Game Boy interface. So uh, last week I talked about um, how to boot it with an SD card loader or just with a blank DVD-R. Um, and he asked about the Smash Brothers hack. Um, I don't know if I'm going to put any info up about that because the amount of effort it takes to load that each time is a long time. And then for people that don't already own Smash Brothers Melee, it's actually cheaper just to get a mod chip. So the amount of time it would take to, to really do all that stuff, I really think it's time better spent to install a mod chip and burn a couple of DVD-Rs or, or even just to try to track down an SD card adapter um, or, or even do both, you know, get a, a mod chip and then get just one of those SD card adapters from Hong Kong that you could boot from a DVD-R but still launch things from an SD card. I just think all those solutions would be a lot easier and less time consuming than the Smash Brothers one and maybe even cheaper depending on the situation. Okay, so up next and for the rest of this episode is an interview with Kevin Horton, who goes by Kevtris Online. Um, he did the high deafness, the HDMI adapter for the Nintendo, as well as a bunch of stuff. Um, I thought it was really awesome that he came on uh, and did the interview with me, and I'm really hoping to get you know uh, at least a few interviews a month on. There's so many awesome people contributing to the scene that I really would love to have their voice heard, and not just on the forums and stuff. I really want, you know, I just kind of want this to be uh, people that you, maybe you don't even hear a lot from and get to go on and talk. So I'm pretty excited to have him on. And uh, he didn't have video though. So rather than just doing a split screen of us talking, um, I figured I would just, you know, put up a backdrop. So anybody on YouTube, I'm really sorry. It's, not, you know, the rest of this isn't going to be very pretty to watch. But um, one cool thing is Kevin did uh, a weird audio project where he took the way that Nintendo audio was made and he replaced one of the audio chips with one from, I think, an Atari. Um, I'll post links to what he did, but basically it's kind of a new way of hearing old NES music that I thought, I mean, when he sent me the link, I was like, oh, cool. And I listened and I just, I loved it. So I kind of have those playing in the background. Those are all his files that he made. Uh, and I'll put up links in case anybody wants to download them or anything. But uh, I uh, I always like music of older games, so I figured it was fitting to have it in here. But I uh, really hope you guys enjoyed the interview. Um, and let me know comments for myself or him. I'm not sure if Kevin's going to be able to reply to any of it. But uh, yeah, I hope you guys enjoyed it as much as I did. All right, so I'm here with Kevin Horton, Kevtris. Uh, and it's really nice to finally meet you other than just a few emails we've exchanged. And yeah. thanks a lot for doing this. Uh-huh. So um, a lot of people are huge fans of yours now, from all the, I think, the Copy Nest projects all the way up to, of course, the High Def Nest, which is, you know, huge. Everybody's just going nuts for that. So uh, um, I don't know, what's, uh, I guess, tell a little bit about yourself. Like, is this what you do for a living? Do you do video and programming? I mean, how did you get into something so crazy and complicated? Well, I've been working where I am now for 25 years. I design cryogenic controllers and other industrial applications. And no, it does not involve freezing bodies. A lot of people <laughs> ask that, but no, it doesn't. <laughs> it's more cancer research and other biological research. And I don't know, I like video games, and it's just kind of a hobby or a side project. So those cryogenic containers, are those for like when people need to send or, or store samples in uh, you know freezing temperatures for long periods of time? Yeah, that's exactly what it is. So they'll store blood, cell samples. Like if they're doing cancer research, they need to store cells for a long time so they can, I guess, look at them in the future. I'm not sure. 
but that's basically what uh, they use our stuff for. Wow, that's really cool. The job I'm doing now is I'm a computer nerd that works on medical PCs, so it's <laughs> you win 100%. <laughs> but, um, awesome. So for uh, for getting into Ness, it's just like, uh, did you just kind of have the desire to do it and then figure it out on your own, or did you kind of tinker with video projects like this beforehand? Well, I've been working with the NES for quite a while. Back in about 97, I was doing a little work trying to figure out more of the hardware, you know, a little reverse engineering, things like that. And that was the one that reverse engineered like the VRC6 and 7 audio hardware specifically. And I've done a whole bunch of other mappers, lots of pirate games and multi-carts and such. Hmm. Yeah, I didn't know you were um, you were the first that did the VR6 mapper or, or reverse engineering. That's really awesome. You know, it's funny how many of these things that I've, I've probably used and downloaded ROMs and patch tools that the people that I know have worked on and created that I just had no idea. Uh-huh. So it's kind of funny how that works. Like uh, Evan Amos, the guy that does all the pictures, he um, I probably use all of his pictures thinking they're stock photos, not knowing that somebody actually worked on those. I ended up, when I finally met him, I apologized. He <laughs> didn't care, though. But, yeah, I probably used a bunch of stuff that you've worked on for a long time and didn't even know it was you. Yeah, what about NSF? I created the NSF file format. Wow, really? Yeah. Huh. Jeez. Well, that's pretty damn cool. Yeah, that's probably about the most uh, th- most things uh, people use and don't know who created it. Yeah, yeah, wow. So I guess it just eventually led to like the HDMI project where you were just tired of not being able to play it on, you know, on an HDTV and just kind of went through the hardware specs and figured it out? No, not really. Well, I've been working on an FPGA Nintendo for a while. You know, it's been done for a while, so I've been using, like, a PVM to play that. So mm-hmm. it's, video quality's never really been a problem. <clears throat> but I was talking to Jason from Game Tech US, and he's like, well, you know, it'd be nice to have an HDMI adapter for the Nintendo. And so I sort of looked into it. I was like, oh, yeah, that won't be that bad. Yeah, maybe I'll work on it. And so I spent a little while and created the hardware and started programming it. And, you know, I got it working pretty quick, but getting it complete was very difficult and time-consuming. I don't know if I would have done it if I'd known it was going to take as long as it did. Oh, so many projects I've worked on. The website, I mean, if I'd known how many thousands of hours I would have put in over the years, I probably would have never started it to begin with. So I yeah. feel your pain. <laughs> um. Well, damn. I mean, everything. Um, I mean, I, I guess I saw a video yesterday from uh, from Jason saying that you guys got new boards in and everything, and um, the next batch is almost ready to go. Probably like another month or so before you get the rest of the parts in. Yeah. Yeah. Any. Uh, I'm, I'm assuming it's the exact same as before, right? Just you know, uh, another run of the hardware. Yeah, I modified the board slightly. The connectors moved out a little more. I don't know if it's going to be enough, but it's moved out as far as it can go, and. I've moved a few other things around on the board, but other than that, the actual way it works is all the same. Cool. So I moved, like, the interposer. I did a little modification so it installs a lot easier on some of the systems. Hmm. But other than that, it's all pretty much the same. Cool. You know, I never really understood what the big deal was about the HDMI port being recessed a little bit. I mean, the worst possible thing you could do is have to trim a little bit of the rubber out of a cheap HDMI cable, right? Yeah, that's right. So I just, I never understood why everybody made a big deal about it. It seems like the easiest fix in the world. Yeah, I don't know. It's like, oh, no's. 
<laughs> they gotta have something to complain about. <laughs> yeah, I guess. And I mean, it's you know, this is this is not like a general public project. You're talking about a group of people that'll generally spend hours tweaking something just to be able to play, you know, a NES game here and there. So the thought of just cutting a couple dollar HDMI cable didn't even enter my mind as an issue. But hey, yeah, that's ever. true. You know, I was actually talking to Jason the other day about. Um, for some reason, I've been really weird about cutting the plastic in my consoles, because, you know, I've been modding consoles since I could touch a soldering iron, pretty much, and although I'm not great at it by any means, I always like messing with it and seeing what else I could do, and I've realized that a lot of the consoles I've had, you know, I did a mod five, ten years ago or something, cut a hole to put a dial in it, and now the plastic's ruined forever, like I can't, uh -huh. unless I find something in that same spot. Um, I was thinking of trying to do uh, the or have Jason do or one of the installers um, an AV Famicom with a high def NES in it, but try to move the port on the top. Now, obviously, I'm not gonna, I wouldn't change your, the board design or anything like that. But have you thought of anything like um, pigtails you could solder into the HDMI port to, or, or putting them up, you know, I guess on top instead of on the bottom or anything like that? Uh, you'd have to buy some kind of cable. There's no way you could solder anything and hope it would work because HDMI is really high speed, and if the cable isn't exactly right, it just won't work. Yeah, that's what I thought because anything anything past a certain distance, it changes the impedance of the wires, and that's it. It's the, It just shuts down as if it won't do the handshake, right? Yeah, something like that. At 1080p, of course, it's much worse than, say, 720, so... Something you could get away at 720, you may not get away at 1080. Hmm. Well, I don't know, it was just something I, I guess I'll play with, but, um, yeah, I know I'm excited to get the next batch. I know there's a ton of people that are just waiting, and, uh, uh -huh. so. Um, you know, one of the things that, uh, the My Life in Gaming guys did when they did the review of it is, you know, I, I took it home and I played through Zelda on, you know, five different displays, and messed with all the settings, and they actually got the geometry fine-tuned exactly. Some of those extra settings you'd put in were just such a massively huge help. You know, the stretching it widescreen just by, you know, pixel by pixel and everything, they were able to get theirs tweaked pretty nice. Um, and I think the only thing that I guess I didn't really think of until afterwards was the, the 4X versus 5X, and I guess I saw your posts on NestDev. It's not a matter of, like, adding another feature and recompiling. Like, that would actually take a rewrite of the code and everything, right? It would need a new chip. Um, there's not oh. enough RAM on the FPGA to buffer enough of the screen to do it. Oh, so it's not it's not a matter of not enough space on the memory of it. It's actually the RAM as it's running to do it. Yeah, well, what happens is, is the HDMI and the NES frames don't run exactly. You know, the data coming out of the NES is being consumed slower by the HDMI monitor hmm. because HDMI doesn't have a very big blanking like the you know composite has a, a fairly large amount of blanking so when the at the top of the frame the NES and the HDMI both start at the top of the frame in sync but the NES actually runs faster than the HDMI and it ends sooner than the HDMI frame does, so you have to store the pixels so the HDMI can keep up, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does, actually. Huh, okay. So the two are perfectly in sync, but the HDMI just consumes its pixels slower because its blank is smaller, so you have to make up for that shortfall, and that's done by storing the data until it can be displayed. 
Gotcha. Okay. All right. That makes sense. So basically, and, uh, no, go ahead. I'm sorry. I would say at the top of the screen, the amount of lag is essentially zero, and at the bottom of the screen, the amount of lag is a couple scan lines, however many it takes to buffer. But then the next frame comes around and it's you know reset. So at the top again, there's no delay, and at the bottom there's you know what 10, 20 scan lines of delay at the most, depending on the mode you're in. Which is imperceptible. To yeah. Me. Oh yeah. It's not <laughs> like a frame worth or anything. It's basically as good as you can do. I mean, there is no way to make it better, as far mm -hmm. as I can tell. Uh, okay, that's pretty cool. Well, that makes a lot of sense now, then. And I guess from everybody else that I've talked to, the uh, any of the higher-end chips is a, a huge jump in price. Uh -huh. So it's not a matter of just the next step up. It's a matter of, you know, I guess the 4K chips are like 500 bucks to be able to do an FPGA with them or something like that, right? Well, um, I would just have to go up to uh, the next level, I think it is. So it would be another, like, 10 bucks. But the problem is I can't just drop the chip in. I would have to redesign the circuit board and probably use a probably use a ball grid array part instead of the QFP I have now. So that would make life a lot worse, and it would cost a lot more. So you'd probably end up adding 40 or $50 to the cost. Yeah, that sounds like a pretty huge project at the moment when you just finished this one. Yeah, and I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna do it at least not for the foreseeable future. I am sick and tired of working on this thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I could totally understand that. So, you know, I actually had a, a question that when I was talking to people like myself that know just enough to be dangerous but not enough to actually be useful, it sounded like a decent question. But I'd like to ask the expert, and hopefully it's okay. not that dumb. But so your board is essentially a digital to digital converter, right? It takes the yep. the Nest PPU and keeps it all digital the whole way, right? That's correct. Yes. So with displays constantly changing and with display technology changing faster than processors and stuff, um, is it ever possible to have something like just a raw output? So obviously no TV in the world will accept you know the Nest's 224 output or whatever. But uh -huh. just for the purpose of for projects like the open source scan converter. If the next revision of that has an HDMI in, um, would I guess kind of future-proofing, if it was even possible, would it be able to send just the raw data that the NES has out through HDMI, um, and then have something like the open source scan converter, or I guess the next R, you know XRGB Mini, whatever the next revision is, be able to detect it through the the digital code and say, oh, this is a NES, and it do the upscaling and processing to whatever you know whatever is next. Yeah, it probably could. I mean, I can output anything. I have, I don't know if you saw any of my videos during the development, but I bought a HDMI, like, uh, protocol analyzer. I was just about to say the analyzer, right, uh -huh. yeah. That thing is pretty cool, because no matter what you send out, it will display it. It doesn't matter how badly formed it is, it will work. Oh, that's cool. So, it, and it does work. I have sent NES rate data out before the HDMI port on this, and it does actually pick it up, but it's highly out of spec, so I doubt anything else would really like it. Hmm. Yeah, because that was the kind of thought of, you know, if you had a zero lag, just the raw output in digital form, and then it kind of future proofs it, so it doesn't matter 4K, 8K, 10K, whatever, it doesn't, you know, it makes no difference. You're uh -huh. just sending it to whatever the next processor is to go to the TV. So I guess in this case it would be the next rev of the open source scan converter. But you know I guess all those things are a few years away anyway. But if that is that's something that's a possibility, I'll just I'll keep bringing it up. <laughs> uh huh. So, but yeah, all right, that's pretty cool. Yeah, like right now on my uh, FPGA NES, 
it can output DVI directly at the NES rate. Oh, wow. And what it does is it scan doubles, so every NES scan line is shown twice, mm -hmm. and it's otherwise fairly close to, say, VGA 640 by 480 rate. But it actually outputs 512 by 480. Oh, okay. And so it doubles the pixels and doubles the scan lines, but otherwise there is zero lag. It's pretty much an exact, you know, NES rate, the blanks all the same and everything. So that's pretty close to that. Yeah, that's pretty awesome. Now, uh, that's actually what I was going to ask next is, you know, what's next on the horizon for you? Are you going to release the FPGA NES as a product, or is that, you know, just a toy that you've been messing with? Well, you know, I don't know if you've heard about it. I've been creating the Zimba 3000. Have you heard of that? No, I haven't, actually. You want to talk about that and kind of let everybody know what it is? Okay, the Zimba 3000 is my FPGA video game system, and it's not just limited to Nintendo. I've already got 18 different cores written for it. I've got, you know, Nintendo, Master System, Game Gear, Game Boy, a um, whole bunch of really obscure things. I'd have to look at a list. I just recently got the Game King handheld on there. Huh. So when you say the cores, do you mean you take emulation cores that other people have written and then kind of port it to that? No, I've written all of these myself using all um, research that I have done. <laughs> so you've done, you wrote like the Master System core yourself from this? Yes. Wow, that is a lot of work. Here, actually, if you want to know the list, I'll get the list here. There's so many systems that I kind of have to look at the list now. So when you do something like this where you have a, you know, an accurately um, written core, when you do it in an FPGA, it's essentially not so much emulation, right? It's kind of like a low-lag, you know, almost a hardware solution, right? It's literally a hardware simulation at the gate and register level. So there's no code. The code that you write is more kind of describing how the circuit works. It's not like C code or anything like that. So essentially it is a low or a no lag solution then unlike Yeah, it's, it's literally a no lag solution. See, this is the type of question I get all the time in things like, you know, what's the future? Because consoles aren't going to last forever. You know, humans uh -huh. are going to, you know, assuming we don't all blow each other up, humans are going to outlast all the all these old consoles. And, you know, is software emulation the next thing? And I just I could never really get on the bandwagon for that because there's always something. Even like uh, the Heigen emulator, that's pretty amazing. Like, there's just something that always ends up happening that you know it's an emulator you're using and not the real thing. But with the FPGA stuff, it doesn't seem like that at all. Like, it seems like uh, even Bunny Boy's, uh, you know, 720p NES doesn't seem all the videos he's put on and all the work he's done on that. I would never consider that emulation at all. That's uh -huh. all hardware FPGA as well, right? Yeah. So, like, what I've done on my NES to recreate that hardware experience, uh, my board has, a, like, a three-channel video DAC. You know, it does, you know, red, green, blue, your, mm -hmm. you know, 8-bit DAC, just like a video card or whatever. But what I have done is, for the NES in particular, I've created, like, the exact NES analog output. And using that DAC, I actually simulate the NES's PPU video output, you know, at the analog level, so to speak. Oh, wow. So, you know how the NES outputs, you know, certain voltages? 
well, my board replicates that exactly. And I did a side-by-side -side comparison, and there is no way you cannot tell the difference. Wow, that is pretty incredible. Yeah, so like the emphasis bits, which is, you know, that was traditionally kind of hard to... Um, hard to emulate for a while everybody's got it now but i actually emulate that the same way the ppu generates it so when you run my signal into a composite monitor it looks exactly the same wow that is really impressive uh-huh and since i'm generating it like that i actually have an s video version of it too that exactly generates an s video you know clone of what the nes would output if it could do s video hmm and how far is that scaled? So I'm assuming you have, you said DVI before, but which is pretty much HDMI as well, right? So yes, that's actually... right. Well, this is an analog output, and it's not scaled. It comes out exactly at the same pixel rate and everything that a real NES does. It's like cycle accurate. Oh, wow, okay. So the video coming out of my board looks on an oscilloscope identical to the video coming out of a real system. There's no way to really tell. And how um, how are the games going to be run on this? Is this you know will there be cartridge adapters, just ROMs off an SD card? Well, right now I'm running ROMs. I have you know 16 megabytes of RAM, and I load the games into there and run them out of that. But there's no reason why it could not run cartridges. I was thinking about cartridge adapters. The problem with those is is all the cartridges are different, and so I'd have to make a different adapter for every system or whatever. And much like um, all those software emulation boxes, you're essentially just ripping the cartridge to re uh, memory anyway. So. No, that's not true. No, I run the game on the cartridge. Oh, you would? Oh, okay. Yes. So that means multi-carts would work, like a power pack would work. Anything that runs on the real system would run on my system exactly the same. Oh, that's pretty interesting. Well, you know, maybe that's a idea for a Kickstarter or something. See what which people want the the cartridge adapters the most for which systems. So. Oh yeah, you want a list of my systems? Uh, uh yeah, sure. I'm not just rattling off. So I got the Master System and Game Gear. That's kind of like one. I got ColecoVision. Uh, the NES, of course. And on the NES, I support all the mappers, all the sound hardware. Versus system. I'm not. I don't do the play choice yet, but I was gonna add it. Wow. Okay. Uh, the Atari 2600. I support all mappers. I support the the Atari Vox speech system. You know that thing that plugs in. Yeah. So I, I emulate that, and that emulation is at the hardware level also. I actually emulate the microprocessor that's in that speech system. It emulates the. Um, supercharger and the supercharger demo unit, you know, Pitfall 2, that all works. Huh. Uh, let's see, then I got a Mandelbrot, real-time Mandelbrot viewer that lets you zoom and pan Mandelbrots in real-time with a controller. That was just a little fun thing I wanted to make. And then I got Intellivision, and the Intellivision supports the Intellivoice, the Intellicart, the ECS, and all the games work, obviously. So on all these systems, all the games work. I have tested every single game and got them all working and debugged. Oh, wow, okay. And then I got the Odyssey Squared, again, with the voice. And so that works. That's 100%. I have the Adventure Vision, which is that tabletop LED uh, game system with the spinning mirror. 
Oh, yeah, yeah. I was just about to ask what that was, but okay. All right. <laughs> yeah, so that, that fully works. Sound works. Everything works on that. And then I have the Supervision, which is a handheld LCD game, you know, like the Watara Supervision. I think it's called a couple things in other countries. Hmm. So I did a full reverse engineer on that, and that all works. And then I have an SPC player for Super Nintendo Music. And that obviously all works. That's done. Studio 2, for what it's worth. (laughs) (laughs) Channel F, again, for what it's worth. And both of those are all 100%, of course. And then the Video Brain, which is kind of like a sort of computer thing that came out in the late 70s. You know anything about that? No, actually, I don't, so... Uh, I can't remember who who created that. Here, let me look that up. Well, the interesting thing about the video brain was uh, I was in a surplus store, and there was a box of chips there, and the chip was, the box was marked Video Brains, and I was like, well, what's that? So I bought some of the chips and brought them home and searched on the Internet, and come to find out, it's this thing called the Video Brain Family Computer. And it was a really, really obscure computer with plug-in game cartridges. So I decided to reverse engineer it and emulate it. So the problem was, I couldn't find one on eBay for less than three or $400. And I'm not going to spend three or $400, right? No, no, not something like that. So I built one. <laughs> I found the schematic for it, and I built a copy of it on Perfboard. Huh. And so I did so a reverse just all by hand on... Well, I guess from the, the systems in the 70s, it's not like uh, not like one of the microprocessors of today where you need this, you know, tiny little pin. So that's... But it must have still been a huge Perfboard to rebuild. Yeah, it's pretty big. Uh-huh. Huh. And then I did the Arcadia 2001. And again, I couldn't find one on eBay, so I built one on Perfboard. I found the, the chips and built one. And then on the Atari 7800, and the 7800 is a direct, like, kind of like a hardware clone of the chip in there. I got the schematic for the Maria chip, which is a video chip, and I basically cloned it on the FPGA. But that's a lot harder than it sounds, because the way the logic works on that chip, it's all, like, dynamic logic, which is really dirty and ugly, and the FPGA can't directly, quote-unquote, emulate it. So I had to come up with a way to do that. So I did that. And then I have the Creative Vision, which is like this really weird... It's kind of like a Coleco Vision, but it, instead of a Z80 running it, it has a 6502 running it. Huh. So that's like a really obscure system. And then, of course, Game Boy. And I got all the games working on the Game Boy, and it also does Game Boy Color. Oh, wow. Game Boy and Game Boy Color? Yeah. And then recently, uh, about a month ago, I added the the Game King, and there's a video on my web on my YouTube channel of me actually implementing it, and you can actually watch and play it, and a few other things. Huh. So, you know, I mean, when you're telling me these, there are two things that are popping into my mind, and the first is, you know, this is awesome that they're going to be. I mean, these systems through this could be saved forever now. You know, even if all the hardware goes, you have your designs to save. Yes. But also the um the portable games. I mean that's uh one of the main reasons I got so deep into the the website is that you know I just I really loved Metroid Zero Mission and I wanted to play it on a TV and have it look good and I just thought all right well let me 
see what I could do and, you know, buy something. And then I had no idea I would spend years trying to hunt down the most perfect solution. And, you know, if you already have something for Game Gear and Game Boy and Game Boy Color, um, that's pretty huge. You know, that's, uh-huh. that's because right now I'm sure, you know, the Game Boy interface software and, you know, it's, it's great, but it still requires a GameCube, an expensive output board. And, you know, there's a few people actually working on doing consoleized Game Boy Advance stuff, but that's probably a year away at best. And it's uh-huh. just it's so neat to know that somebody's actually doing all this so that, you know, this isn't going to be a problem, you know, soon enough. You can just load the ROMs and play them. So, um, have you heard of the Bliss Box? Oh, uh, not really. So, it's basically um, a small little box that has, that takes, it's a controller adapter to skip to okay. the end. But um, the guys that made it have it so that there's now pigtails for pretty much every t- kind of controller you could imagine. So that uh-huh. um, so if you wanted to plug anything from Genesis all the way to like a Virtual Boy controller into <laughs> it, and then it outputs USB, okay. um, if that seems like something that would be perfect to use in conjunction with what you're designing. That way you could use all the original controllers from all the original systems. Yeah, I was I was um, planning on having USB on the Zimba 3000. I was gonna have four USB ports, I think. Yeah, that would work perfect. Um, I'll send you the guy's email after okay. we're done with this, though. Maybe. I don't know if uh, you know he'll send you one to try out, or or maybe just send you his design to implement in or something. But uh, definitely worth looking at, just because it's it's just really neat to to think you know you'll have a perfectly you know hardware emulation, and then you could just pick up an adapter and be able to play it with the original controller too. You know, uh huh. Especially weird ones like you know uh, the Master System controller. I usually end up using Genesis. Same thing with Atari, but like ColecoVision. You kind of have to use that weird old controller, you know. Yeah. It really it just doesn't translate well to the other ones. So. So right now I've just been using a Super Nintendo controller for all of those systems mainly. Yeah, that's my favorite controller. It seemed to always fit my hands the best, anyway. Yeah. So I had a lot of things like on the 2600. If you press Start and Select, it's the same thing as hitting like Reset and Select on the console. Yeah. Like that. So, um, is there, like, a, a target release for this? I know it's impossible to say when it's a hobby project, but, I mean, is this something that you're going to be releasing within a few years, a few months, or just work on it till you're done with it and then release it, or...? I really don't know. You know, I created the the hardware for it, but I got to revise it. I got circuit boards made. I never actually stuffed them, but um, I got to redesign the hardware. I was going to make it smaller and cheaper. You know, I've been trying to make it really cheap, as cheap as I can, so really cheap is still kind of expensive, so that's why I'm kind of apprehensive about what kind of market they'll be for this thing. Mm-hmm. But I was hoping to have some kind of port on there so I can plug in cartridge adapters. Well, that'd be really nice. But the problem, like I said, is you know there's so many different ones, and you know everybody wants a different cartridge adapter because everyone has their favorite system. Right. Exactly. Um, is this something where you would open source the the software part of it so people could write their own cores and, and you know try to add their own side to this as well? Um, it probably wouldn't be open source, but I would allow people to make their own cores for it. Mm-hmm. I would have like some kind of uh, whatever you would call it, like an API or something. Yeah, yeah. So you could make your own cores for it, but. I was thinking about if there's any open ones out there. If I don't write it, I'll probably import them. But generally, I want to write all my own software. You know, it may not be the most efficient thing, but 
I think I think I can do a really good job. And so far, I've had pretty good luck with all these systems. So yeah, and it's always you know if you're in control of a project from start to finish, it's always you know if there's ever going to be a bump in the road, it's when you implement somebody else's stuff. Even if yes. somebody else's stuff is perfect, you know you know all the quirks because you designed it from start to finish. So. Well, I've I've looked around over the years at all the various FPGA video game projects that are out there, and I don't know, I can't, it kind of sounds biased, but I have not been very impressed, I guess you could say. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Some of them are okay, but most of the time, if you look, there's always things that don't work, like a lot of times there's no sound, or there's lots of bugs where half the games don't work, or things like that, so I mean, it's just like, kind of like, yeah, that's okay, but you know, that's just not going to get you there. Yeah. Or worse, you get products like the Retron 5 where, you know, yeah. they talked about that for years. They kind of were really shady about everything. And as soon as I got it home and pulled it apart, I just realized, oh, man, it's an emulator. It's an emulator on an Android box. What yeah, a running stolen source code or not really stolen, it's open source emulators that they don't, that they didn't license. And a lot of those emulators they use say not for commercial use. Right. Right, and at least the the retro freak console, which is pretty much the exact same thing, you know, at least they they went about it slightly less shady. You know, they uh -huh. were honest from the beginning about what it is that you were buying, and I don't even think it comes with an OS on it. I think you have to download it yourself. Tech, so technically, they're not supplying you know uh -huh. a stolen OS, but it's still just it's still just a software emulator. And I mean, I remember when I loaded the Retron Five up to my TV. Yeah, it's a plasma TV which has lag, but you know, I played Genesis, which seemed okay. Playing Game Boy Advance seemed all right, and I played SNES, and I just went, "Oh my God, I can't, I can't even do it like this. This is mm -hmm. so much lag, and there were so many bugs, and it just, you know." And I imagine the people that wrote those emulators too are cringing because, you know, I've <laughs> seen those emulators perform so much better on other stuff. So. Yeah. Well, I I plugged in Boulder Dash. You know, Jason from Game Tech came over, and we were looking at one of the Retron Fives, and I have a video I posted about that of us looking at trying to fix it because a lot of them break apparently they just quit working and so we were looking at it and i pretty much narrowed down why they did why it wasn't working but anyways and the one he did have that worked i was playing boulder dash which you know i played i've played the, that a lot on the nes so i'm really familiar with it but hmm. the amount of lag was just terrible yeah I, mean, I don't think i'm very sensitive to the input lag but man that thing was so bad if you move the controller left and right really fast the little character on the screen was like moving opposite so i was pressing left and he was actually moving right because of the, the lag yeah yeah it's pretty crazy to see i don't know if you've ever seen um phone dorks video where he does this demonstration of what lag is and he's freaking out in the tv because he can't get Mega Man to work right and it's just that <laughs> no, is exactly that. it's exactly what it's like with me sitting in a room if i have to deal with a laggy emulator or you know somebody didn't put their tv in game mode and it's just yeah it drives me insane I'm, i've always been sensitive to it too as soon as you know lcd screens first came out it was the first thing i noticed is uh -huh. you know, i didn't even know it was called lag i just remember going you know, what the hell's wrong with this thing yeah so, well, well that's cool i mean th you know thanks so much for doing this and, and coming on i'm sure a lot of people are going to love it and just you know you uh -huh. got a lot of really awesome technical videos on there and then a lot of them were kind of mixed in with game text so i just wanted to do like a quick like you know who's kevin what's up with your stuff and and kind of go from there but you know this is really cool i really appreciate this uh-huh well, if I get a camera, I can do it again, this time with a camera, but unfortunately... <laughs> well, I have a nice camera, but 
um, it doesn't have any kind of HDMI output, so I can't run it into my capture card. So right, it's yeah, there. Well, hey man, anytime, anytime you want to come back on and talk about anything else you're working on, you're always welcome. And you know, I'm okay. obviously a huge fan of the high def NES, and apparently a lot more of your work that I didn't even realize was your work. So, uh, well, yeah. one more thing I thought I'd cover. Because you asked me what I was going to work on next. Well, before the Zimba 3000, I had one other project that I really want to get out there and sell. I think may sell okay. Mm-hmm. And that is a multi-function chiptune player slash synthesizer with MIDI on it. I was wondering if anybody would really be interested in such a thing. Uh, I'm going to say yes, definitely. There is uh-huh. such a huge, huge following online of people that love chiptune stuff. And uh-huh. you know, there are all those people that actually buy the modded Game Boys so they can create music with them. And uh-huh. Yeah, I mean, that's that's pretty huge. I, I would uh, I would think that a lot of people would be interested in that. Not so much gamers, but musicians, definitely. Yes, yes, that's what I was thinking about, is musicians mainly. Do you do any of that stuff? Do you make any chiptune music or anything? Uh, not really, but I've made a long line of players hmm. and other related hardware so like right now i have an fpga based chiptune player that'll play you know like nsfs sid files game boy music fm stuff like off the pc master system and a few other things Jeez, that's pretty cool yeah it's handheld and you know at the sid it actually has analog filters i recreated the sid filter in analog hardware and so the sid stuff sounds pretty good that's like my favorite favorite you know chip so of course i put a lot of effort into that Jeez, you know somebody uh, i think it was last year offered to send me a a chiptune game boy to mess with and try out but i just i had to pass i've spent 20 years trying to play guitar and i could you know (laughs) i don't know if you heard any of the stuff i posted online but you know it's not bad but that's that's all i got yeah (laughs) i don't want to go back and relearn uh relearn programming music from scratch but uh i know i I love listening to a lot of it i know a lot of other people that do so that's Uh uh, i I think i do too so i've always wanted you know i i got a commodore 64 in like 85 and i really like the music on there and even that long ago, when I was just a teenager, I was like, well, you know, it'd be really cool to be able to play this anywhere. Yeah. You know, and not through a tape either. You know, some yeah. kind of hardware device. And Right, exactly. Took, yeah, yeah, it took until 90, what was it, 93 or 94, where I actually created a, a SID player with a real SID chip on it. Hmm. And it would actually load SID tunes. So, yeah, that was the first uh, in a long line of things I created to play Sid tunes, and then later on all the other chip stuff. You know, it's funny because when I first messed with emulators, I think it was the Nesticle emulator. Uh-huh. I don't know if you remember that one. Yeah, I do. But it, uh, I think it was either that one or it was another one uh, that had you could save the audio files. Okay. And I that was one of the first things that I did with it was save the soundtrack to like the opening of Zelda and a lot of my uh-huh. favorite games because I just I wanted the music and this was you know this is the 90s you can't go online and download it you can't yeah, buy yeah. a CD of it you know you had to make it yourself so that's pretty cool and, and some of those soundtracks of those older games are just out of this world I mean that band uh, Power Glove all they do is they remake old Nintendo and, and video games soundtracks into like hard rock heavy metal songs. Yeah, I think that's you know? I think that's pretty cool. Yeah, I mean there's so many great great music on that and it's just so yeah, I mean having a chiptunes thing that people kind of redo that again, it's pretty awesome. Yeah, so that's just what I was working on. I'll, I was going to post some more info on my uh, YouTube channel via some videos, but 
Yeah, that's basically what I've been working on, and I was thinking maybe I could make a sellable version of a chip tune player that people can buy and you know use and hook up to MIDI or and lists and things like that. Well, I would definitely say go for it, and uh, I'll put links to all your stuff on here. Okay. Um, do you is your main outlet to people through YouTube? Do you have a website or forums or things that you like to stick to, or is it basically just your YouTube channel? Uh, my YouTube channel is pretty big. I have a website, kevtris.org, but it hasn't been updated in forever, unfortunately. It's so hard to make a web page. I just don't have time. Nah, I hear you. Trust me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So. I mean, there's only so many hours in the day I'm working on all this stuff. I don't have the time to learn how to you know, do a modern web page, so to speak. Mm-hmm. and all the upkeep it takes. Yeah, totally understand. So, um, I mean, I, that's actually, I'm, I'm not a fan of social media, which is weird because I'm a nerd and I like to, you know, I like to drink and hang out with my friends, so you <laughs> think I'd be all over social media all the time, but I just, that's not my thing, but I found it to be awesome for the website. You know, somebody emailed me a couple years ago and just said, hey, you know, where's a place I can get updates for this? And I just thought, well, hey, Twitter. Twitter, you get the instant update, and then Facebook for any more descriptions. So, you know, I guess if uh, if you didn't want to deal with making a website, but you wanted to, to have a way to talk to people, those are probably great if you ever want to get into that. But I um I just I created a separate Facebook account just for the website, so I don't have to go on and get sucked into any of the <laughs> social media yeah. drama. I just go on and do my nerd stuff, and that's that. So, well, awesome. Well, thanks again for coming on. Um, yeah, well, thanks uh, for having me on. Yeah, I really appreciate it. You're always welcome, and uh, and definitely let me know when any of this stuff comes up for sale. I'll promote the hell out of it for you. Okay, sounds good. Well, thanks for talking with me, and I had had a fun time. Thanks, man. I'll talk to you soon. Take care. Yep. Bye. Well, guys, thanks for listening. Thanks to Kevtris for coming on, and subscribe, like, and comment, and all the usual. Uh, so take care, and we'll see you next week.